0: Hey everybody, this is Ken Morton Jr., and this is the 26th edition of the Hazel Rockets podcast. We're uh, really grateful that you guys are sticking with us and uh, continue to listen uh, as we talk about all things golf and beyond. And... Um, I'm really excited about this week's guest, as we are a lot of ours, to be honest, but uh, this particular one is a, a dear friend um, and a little departure from what we normally get a chance to uh, to talk about. Um, while there is certainly golf in his background, and he's done some amazing things uh, with the game of golf, which we'll touch upon later, um, his story is certainly outside golf. And Uh, This week we get a chance to talk to uh, country music star and uh, best-selling author Jimmy Wayne. But before we go there and before I give you a little background on Jimmy, um, I thought I would kind of touch upon uh, the state of our industry at the moment and uh, make a little analogy uh, with uh, golf and what's going on on the equipment side of golf at the moment. Uh, Never before have we ever seen shortages and delays in equipment as we are right now. Uh, Yesterday we placed uh, a couple custom orders with uh, products and here we are in early June and uh, we were quoted late December delivery on a couple of these. And I won't throw them under the bus, but uh, suffice it to say it was one of the big guys in uh, we're it's not uncommon for us to see months, uh, you know, sometimes three, four months delays on products. And there's an analogy somewhere in there with our golf swings and golf games and patience and, uh, you know, um, taking it easy and keeping you know things uh, in perspective when we're out on the golf course. That's certainly applying when it's coming to club fittings and, and purchasing new equipment out there right now. And I wanted to give everybody kind of a little bit of background on maybe kind of why that is. I I find it a little bit interesting. I think some of the listeners will as well. But uh, when COVID hit um, back in uh, early March for here in the U.S., um, it had been raging through uh, China where a lion's share of all of the equipment is made um, for a good 60 to 90 days and had all but shut down all of the manufacturing plants. So... Even if COVID hadn't extended to the U.S., we would have seen huge shortages of product just because uh, the factories weren't open in actually building and casting and you know making all the golf clubs overseas. But then at that point at which uh, it did hit in the U.S. in uh, mid to late March when everything was shut down, including lots of golf courses and, and retail stores across the U.S., um, all of the manufacturers at that point in time, uh, nearly all of them, really cut production and cut expectations on what they thought they were going to sell through the end of the year. Cancelled production orders overseas, even if they could get made, um, and really, you know, just played it more conservatively because, you know, if you're in charge of uh, a uh, you know millions of dollars company and and. You know, and you don't feel like you're going to be selling it through, of course you're going to do that, and, and who can blame them? But then this weird thing happened uh, when we had a chance to reopen the golf courses. Golf was one of the few things that people could actually go out and do. The interest level in our game, all of those people who had said, you know what, I'd love to take up the game, but I don't have time, and now we're working from home, or had... Uh, needed to find things to as an outlet to do with their kids because they were home from school and and really needed a diversion to not be locked up in the house. All of a sudden, golf became the golden sport. And we have had a massive influx of new golfers over the last year. I mean, it's crazy to think that a pandemic was a thing that was be... You know the the magic wand for the game of golf as a whole, uh, but it it, it truly uh, it has forever changed our sport at this point in time, and the interest level in new equipment was at an all time high by summer. So here we have, you know, three months of China factory shut down, and then three months of you know virtually the world shut down, and then all of a sudden demand, unlike it has ever seen before. And uh, all of a sudden, there wasn't enough product. And this is, you know, middle of summertime. And and fast forward an entire year from now, it hasn't been caught up. Uh, You know, the ports have been short. So even when uh, the production did ramp up over in China, uh, where we would normally be getting products in, you know, 60 to 120 days after placing manufacturing orders, they're taking almost twice as long because... Uh, all of the backup at the ports and uh, them working at you know half capacity because COVID swept through all the ports and, and they're working uh, with far fewer people. Uh, we actually had one of our manufacturers go over to the Port of LA back in, uh, this was late March, early April, and they counted 90 ships lined up in a row outside the Port of LA that had nearly 200,000 containers waiting to be unloaded. Um, and normally, again, that process can be you know, normally three to five days to get through a port and on a truck and on its way. Some of these were taking up to two months to get through. Uh, I mean, just crazy to think about it. Containers normally are around $2,500 to ship from China to uh, to the U.S. Um, right now, they're trading for anywhere from 12000 to $15,000 for those same containers because there's such a demand uh, and there's such a backlog over there to get them transferred over. There's ship shortages. There's ac- the actual containers that everything are shipped in. There's shortages of those. Once they do get here and and finally make it through uh, customs, there's actually trucking shortages. And, um, and you know, uh, all of the, uh, the FedExes and UPS's of of getting it delivered from the manufacturers to us, they're overwhelmed. And it's just it's this crazy tidal wave of shortages and even uh, one more th- one to throw in there is uh, in um, earlier this year it was either late January, early February. We found out that when that deep freeze hit Texas, uh, there's actually a Dow chemical plant that's located in Texas that uh, makes uh, much of the surlyn for golf balls, urethane for golf balls, uh, makes much of the rubber compound that a lot of the grip companies use. Well, when that deep freeze hit Texas and it knocked all the power out, it actually knocked that factory offline for weeks. And what we're finding now is that there's huge, in addition to all the demand needs going on, there's huge shortages on uh, the compounding products to make all of these products like ferals and grips and um, uh, urethanes and sirlins for golf balls. And so now we even have you know shortages on range balls. It's just it's just crazy. Um, but what it does is it just reminds us all, again, exactly like when we're on the golf course, is just to take a breath. Is it the end of the world that our clubs are going to be here in, you know, maybe 12 weeks instead of two weeks like we're accustomed to? It's inconvenient for sure. But again, think long term picture. Uh, think about what's going on in the world and all the blessings that we have to be able to play this great sport that we all love and are passionate about. Um, it probably puts it in a little bit of perspective and uh, things are getting better. They're, they're uh, slowly, uh, we're, we're catching up and uh, a lot of manufacturers and shortages and shafts and grips and all that kind of stuff slowly are getting better. So hopefully by 2022, uh, all of your stuff will be coming in a fairly timely manner. And with that, I'm going to switch over to a uh, really amazing life story in one Jimmy Wayne uh, and give you a little bit of background on him. He's a former foster kid turned award-winning country recording artist whose songs and stories really highlight his mission to raise awareness for children in foster care. And that's his entire mission in life. Uh, If you're a country music fan, you totally recognize some of his hits like Stay Gone Paper Angels, I Love You This Much, Do You Believe Me Now. Uh, that last song earned the BMI's prestigious Millionaire Award for receiving more than a million radio spins. Um, and one was, was one of the most, if not the most, played uh, songs uh, back then. Uh, in 2009, he toured with Brad Paisley. He's recorded Sarah Smile with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer duo Daryl Hall and John Oates, which are his good friends. And then in 2010... He paused everything and he wanted to use his platform to raise awareness again for foster care. So he took off from Nashville and actually walked halfway across America from Nashville to Phoenix to raise awareness for kids aging out of the foster care system. So, again, if you're not aware, when kids are 18 and are in foster care, if they haven't been adopted at 18, they age out. There's no financial benefit for the, uh, ha- the homes or the places that are taking care of them. And they're literally just kind of booted out on the street. And so Jimmy has made it his mission in life to go around to each of the 50 states and have that extended to 21. And he has been hugely successful. Uh, I know here in California, he has actually been in front of our legislature and actually got that change made. Um, so that walk all the way across from Nashville to Phoenix, uh, later that year, he would actually write his first book called Paper Angels, uh, which is about the uh, paper angels that the Salvation Army does uh, that are gifts uh, for kids. It's, uh, it's really amazing. It actually made, was made into a film in 2013. And then in 2014, he released the uh, best-selling uh, biography called Walk to Beautiful, the power of love, and a homeless kid who found the way. And I can tell you that this particular book is my favorite book I have ever read. Uh, It moved me to tears. It was inspiring. It was heartbreaking. Um, And again, I have had the privilege of knowing Jimmy for uh, a good decade or more. I learned all kinds of things about him and his background that I didn't know before. But what continually amazes me is his ability to rise above the tragedy and the negativity that he was born into and grew up in and find the beauty in love and find the beauty in life. In 2016, he received the prestigious Points of Light Award from President George Bush, George W. Bush, I should say, um, and then has continued to work uh, with the uh, foster care program to make that change from 18 to 21 across the country. Jimmy's one of those guys where uh, when you spend 10 minutes with him, you always walk away uh, thinking to yourself, geez, Louise, I need to go make a difference in a, in a more profound impact in my community. It just rubs off on you. It, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing gift that he has and, um, he now is a keynote speaker. Uh, he actually uh, has a story called The Power of One uh, that he goes around the world. He continues to perform. He's performed on the Grand Ole Opry uh, over 220 times, uh, lives in Nashville, and actually has been uh, uh, back uh, writing some music more lately. Um, and he, again, w- is one of the more powerful uh positive points of light that you're ever going to meet in your entire life, and I'm thrilled that he's going to join us today. So listen to this uh, interview. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Um, Go out and buy Walk to Beautiful if you haven't uh, ever read it before. I promise you it's one of the more inspiring reads you've ever had. And without further ado... I'd love to introduce one Jimmy Wayne. Well, as I did on our introduction, I am uh, thrilled to have uh, Jimmy Wayne in on as our guest this week on Hazel Rockets. I I didn't mention it in his intro, although I glowed about him on a whole bunch of different things. One of the things we are most proud of is that here in Sacramento, Jimmy's been a integral part of our Golf and Guitars Music Festival here. Uh, that has raised over a million and a half dollars for uh, local uh, uh, deserving kids, and um, where we've given over 200 college scholarships. And Jimmy's been involved in more years than not over all of those last 13 years. And so, Jimmy, first of all, let me just tell you thank you for that, pal.
1: Thank you for having me. It's, it's truly an honor being a part of that uh, event, it's fun. It's, uh, you know, for the family, it's just fun being in that environment. Great food, really great entertainment, and an extraordinary host. So I'm very (laughs) thankful for you and your your wife and your your family and, of course, um, the the, the, the local radio station.
0: Yep, for sure. Um, So seeing as this is a a golf podcast, and and Jimmy, uh, you have a... um, I, I teased your, your walk to beautiful book in, in my, in the intro here. I know, uh, a golf course played a role in your, uh, your early childhood. And I, I, was hoping maybe we could open with that story and then kind of dive into, to be in the rest of the story there. So let's start, uh, it, with golf maybe, um, as a starting point. Sure. Um,
1: When I was seven years old, my mom uh, took me and my sister um, and we moved from Johnsonville, South Carolina to Crowder's Mountain, North Carolina. Uh, And we moved in with my granddad, my mom's dad. Across the dirt road and across the church yard and across the main back road is a golf course. So you could literally sit in the living room of his house, and you could look 100 yards away, not even that far, 20 yards maybe, and you're on a golf course, so really close. And my granddad was a bootlegger. He sold white liquor. He wasn't the kind of granddad that would spend time with his grandkids. He never spoke two words to me, and that was usually, um, you punk, punk, or get out, or he just really crushed the old guy. What One thing he did, encouraged me to do, um, and he spoke more than two words here, but he said, go out there on the golf course and hunt golf balls out of the bushes and creeks and take those golf balls and sell them back to the golfers for 25 cents. And I started a business. Um, obviously, this happened when I was around 10 years old because we lived with him on and off Throughout my childhood, so around 10 years old when it's happened, um, man, I spent the entire summer day hunting golf balls out of those creeks and those bushes, and I would put them in a tube sock, tie tie that tube sock to my belt loop, and I'd stand behind the green, out of the way, and I learned to be quiet. And you know, the golfer would putt, and after that, I'd say golf ball, 25 cents, and sometimes they would. You know, they would kind of just nod their head and say thank you. Sometimes they wouldn't say anything. Sometimes they'd say, or they'd ask, what do you got, kid? That's the golf balls, you know. They'd say, I give you $10 for the whole sleeve. And, man, I I mean, to a 10-year-old, $10 is a lot of money. And I learned the most valuable thing in my life, which is the reason why I am where I'm at today. I learned a work ethic. I learned how to work at 10 years old. I learned how to get out there and work and not ask my granddad for money, my mom for money, or anybody else, or expect anything for free. I learned how to work. And that truly is my lifeline and what has saved my life and brought me to where I'm at today.
0: That's... uh such a profound story pal and I know that extends not only in your work ethic in what has been your music career and your writing career and in your acting career but also in some of the efforts that you uh, have put forth in um, moving the uh, aging out requirement from 18 to 21 for foster kids. And again, I, I teased a little bit in on that in, in our opening and um, in, in my intro for you, but I thought maybe you could dive a little bit into that and um, maybe uh, some of the work that you've done on that front uh, in you know all of the hard effort and work drawn from those early lessons in that regard too. Well,
1: there's not always... A monetary return on your investment when you work and uh, picking golf balls out of the bushes and selling them back to the golfers, uh, there was definitely a return, a monetary return and of course that would allow me to take my sister and to the public swimming pool and we'd have enough money to get in and enough money to buy chips and a soda. Um, When I was 16 years old, I was rescued by family because inevitably I ended up living in foster care and moved around from home to home and was split up from my sister when I was 13 and she was 14. Um, but by the time I was 16, I, I, um, I, had ended up, I ended up living on the street in North Carolina. And the only thing that kept me going afloat, if you will, with the fact that I knew how to work, and I would go out and I'd do odd jobs, and I'd make enough money to buy food. And inevitably, this family um, in their 70s, a 75-year-old woman and a 79-year-old man, gave me an opportunity They allowed me to uh, cut their grass. Um, And then by the end of the summer, they invited me to move into their home, which inevitably gave me the opportunity to go back to school, go to college, Get a decent job, uh, which they did not pay for. They expected me to work and pay for it, which I did. And it gave me an opportunity to pursue and catch my dream, which is where the monetary, the non monetary equation falls into place here. It's <laughs> because you think I'm going to make it big and I'm going to make a lot of money. Well, sometimes, you know, uh, the, the best way to end up, the, sometimes the only way to end up with a million dollars in the music business is to start with $2 million. Um, (laughs) You just uh, don't always make a living doing this, but I've been very blessed. But there's also another important element to this, and it's definitely non-monetary. It's taking all of that experience, all of that experience growing up in the foster care system, hunting golf balls, selling them, you know, walking into convenience stores and just asking for, is there anything around here I can do because I'm hungry? I'll I'll cut grass or do whatever, make enough money, buy food. All of that experience, and then of course all of the success that God has given, blessed me with, is to be able to take all of that and use it to now go and help children growing up the way I grew up. And to me, that's the biggest, most amazing payoff of um, of my life and career has been able to go, you know, to stand on the Senate floor in California, in Sacramento, California, stand there in front of lawmakers, people who literally pass uh, or, or write laws, bills, if you will. And you stand in front of them and you say, I am one of the children I'm standing here fighting for. And the fact that they've listened. And then the governor signs this bill that bill goes out of the Capitol, and then it, it is um, implemented, and all the kids in the state of California and across America are affected positively by this one bill that extended foster care to age 21 uh, and gave these children, uh, these young adults, three additional years to transition into adulthood to become productive citizens. and then to meet those kids at certain events, like I'd go to a university recently and I spoke and there was a few kids there that was a recipient of that bill. And I'm thinking, wow, man, I, I mean, they, they told me, they said, if that bill had not passed, I would not be in college right now. And it, I mean, the feeling that you get when you hear that is bigger than any award the music business could ever offer. I mean, there's no kind of award bigger than that. And to look at that girl sitting there with tears in her eyes, crying, saying, thank you for fighting for me. I would not be able to go to school. I don't know where I'd be because I was about to age out at 18 years young in California. And most of the time, those kids, that age out, there's 30,000 a year. that age out, the majority of them end up homeless. 80% of the foster children that age out end up in sex trafficking. 80%. That's amazing. And it, it's crazy, man. And then 30,000 children, out of that 30,000 children, 49% of them are female. Think about it. And then within within the first year of aging out, 50% of that 49%, those girls end up pregnant. So now you have that problem. And I hate to say problem, but it is a problem Yeah, because they're dependent on the government. Now their child is dependent on the government, so inevitably the taxpayers pay for this stuff. So why not encourage these kids to start working early? I'm getting back to that because that's truly the lifeline to work, and that way they can take care of themselves. But ultimately, being able to help them get the bills passed and all that to help give them that little extra time, as long as they are helping themselves, man, there is no bigger greater feeling than that, I'm telling you. And I'm so thankful for you and what um, your golf complex has done to support my cause and my campaign to help these kids for so many years, Ken. I mean, you have been there, your family's been there. It's just, um, you know, when, I mean, you can edit this out if you want to, but I'm always defending California. (laughs) I am, man. Because I'm in the South. And in the the South, people think people in California are are Hollywood. That's all they know.
0: Are you suggesting that I am not Hollywood, Jimmy?
1: I'm (laughs) suggesting that you are not Hollywood. And I always tell these folks, I'm like, listen, I can tell you of the nicest human being you'll ever meet, and that's Ken Morton. I mean, he and his family, I don't know what it is, but they are consistently nice every time you talk to them, every time you see them. I mean, just the nicest. And so um, it's always fun to tell these people what you do, what your golf complex does to help children and to help people. It, it really, <laughs> it, they just look at me like, really? I'm like, yeah, man, this guy is totally
0: not what you're thinking of. <laughs> California people are like. Well, we can't do it without your help. I, you mentioned California. Jimmy, how many states around the country have – um, have moved from 18 to 21 and how much, how many more do we still have to go?
1: Well, so far that I know of there's been 23 states that's extended foster care to age 21. However, within those states, you have counties. So let's say there's 200 counties in Tennessee or whatever. If those counties don't implement that law, then what good is it? Right. So we right. have to make sure. And also, here's another battle: if one county has more money than the other county, then these children get more help than these children. And you know, for instance, the kids in the rural America—you know, these these little kids living in trailer parks—they um, don't have a laundromat on the premise. They're not. They don't have access to the local facilities, downtown. Uh, they're out in rural America. These kids are struggling just just as hard or even worse or more than a lot of the other kids that's getting a lot of attention. So we need to make sure we remember that and remember the kids in rural
0: America. If you're out there and you're listening to this and you're compelled to help, how, Jimmy, how do people get involved in, in spreading this message and, and helping these kids?
1: Usually people like to help people in their own hometown, they, I've learned that over the past 20 plus years I've been doing this, um, sometimes they don't know where to start. And I would always say, if you have a computer, just Google, organizations in my community or near me that help children. And you can, usually you can find an organization in your community somehow, some way that's helping kids. Um, if you don't want to do that, if you just don't want to be known, because some people don't want to do it in their community because they don't want people to know what they're doing, then I would suggest going on like um, you can still Google like organizations that are helping, or I have a website called Project M M H as a Meeting Halfway dot org. It's not a um, it's it's an organiza- it's a page where you can go, you can see what I'm doing, and let's say you want to donate uh, money to an organization, but you don't know which one you want to donate to. This I set up this uh, fund page, if you will, or I just call it Envelope, that is hosted by the, the Nashville Community Alliance. I don't handle the money. I never see it. I never touch it. I never look at it. I never count it. I never nothing. The only thing that I do is I set up a folder for people to go to and donate. They can put their donation in that folder. It fits in that folder. One hundred percent of it sits in that folder until I am either contacted by an organization somewhere in rural America that needs help. And what this organization does in Nashville, they'll do a little small investigation to find out if they're legitimate, if they have a tax ID. You know if they're only the up and up yep. and find out what they need they, they need 20 mattresses or whatever then they'll call me and say Jimmy this organization is on the up and up they need 20 mattresses the mattresses are going to cost a hundred dollars a piece okay take the money from that fund and write them a check and send it to them that's how it works and people say well how did that organization uh, make money to stay afloat well the um, Interest. That's how they keep the uh,
0: organization going. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Switching yeah. gears a little bit, I know you, um, in, in and I touched upon your, your authorships of, of a, a couple books, and, and but you're also doing some keynote speaking. Talk to me about Power of One and kind of the messaging that you're going out and delivering to corporate America.
1: In 2010, I walked halfway across America to raise awareness for these children. These young adults aging out. And, you know, when I got back to Nashville, I walked 1,700 miles every single step of the way. And when I got back to Nashville, I had a, just a, my mind was completely different. I mean, my outlook truly was different. I no longer wanted to be, had a desire to be a star, like on the stage, getting my, you know, trying to be showy or anything. I, I just, I just was not interested in that anymore. Uh, because I really felt like that, you know, God had another plan for me, you know, rather than being a star, just to be a light for somebody else that needs help finding their way. You had a higher so calling. I, I thought Exactly. So I was like, you know, I I just, people were asking, well, man, when are you going to get back in the studio? When are you going to blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, you know, um, I'm just not led to do that anymore. So I started doing some keynote speeches, sharing my story, my testimony, and I realized, Ken, it is absolutely what I'm supposed to be doing. Man, it is amazing. I go into rooms filled with people who would never go to a country concert. I mean, CEOs, I mean, highfalutin people to social workers to inventors to entrepreneurs here I mean to I mean the Porta John association I mean I've been in every room you can imagine in front of people and I shared the same story the power of one how this family took me in and changed my life it's not a foster care story it's just a very inspirational motivational story that will move your audience to action one hundred percent of the time this thing is such a powerful story it's such a Surgical strike in, into the hearts of everyone in that room. Grown men crying. You know, people just moved. What can I do to help? Or that movie was so inspiring to me because I've been there. No one's, no one knows my story because I've always just been ashamed to tell it. But now I'm so thankful for your I mean, it's just amazing to see how God has turned my life into this. Put me on stages in front of people who would. I mean, I would never, you know, thought I'd be there. I mean, it's, it's truly amazing what's happening in my life right now. Just because i decided to follow what God wanted me to do, and um, I'm doing it, man. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing feeling. I get to take Jackie with me. Um, she comes out on the road with me, and it's just, just us. And we'll go out, and I'll speak. And sometimes if it's a really cool area where we can go, you know, like Tahoe or whatever, We'll book on another day and spend that day down by the water. So it's like he's giving me this job and an opportunity to have a day vacation. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Central to Jimmy's book is this family that took him in and uh, this little white-haired lady named B. And uh, she is she is the light that sparked Jimmy's light in in this book. And it and again I cannot recommend this book high enough. I, as I'd mentioned earlier in the intro, um, it will move you to tears and make you laugh out loud. And but most of all, it will inspire. But um, it, Jimmy, I, it just every time we bring her up, I'm I find it remarkable that this little old. Unassuming lady, now through you is touching tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. It's 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 pretty remarkable if you think about it, isn't it?
1: Yes, millions of people. I stood in Russia. I had a um, an interpreter to interpret the story, so they were hearing me talk, but they were hearing what the interpreter was saying, and even through an interpreter that story translated to people standing up clapping and crying in Russia. I stood in Guatemala, same thing. I stood in, I mean, just everywhere, because it's the power of one, what one person can do that positively affects someone else's life forever. And that's exactly what this woman did. Seventy-five years old, took in a 16-year-old a long-haired tattooed kid living on the street um and gave me an opportunity boy i tell you what i wouldn't be here i mean the i could just go on and on about her. Yeah. And she's just humble she was humble she she never told me anything that she did for other people and i found out after she was promoted to glory that all these people are sitting in the church Small-town America, you know everybody. But there was all these people in the congregation that I didn't know. And I asked her daughter after the funeral, I'm like, who is that? She said, oh, that's such-and-such. Mom took her in in the early 90s and helped her, and that's her and her husband and her family now. Oh, that's such-and-such. What's his name? Uh, Mom and Dad took him in in the the, the 70s or the 80s, and that's him and his wife and his family and their kids. Oh, that's such-and-such over there, Mom. I found out I was just one of many kids they helped. Unbelievable, man! I'm telling you the truth. It's unbelievable what they did for so many people, and the stories to this very day still pour in about the generosity that this family showed people in the community. They tell me stories. I just they had the first television in the community within a 50 mile radius. They would put that television up in the window of their gas station. And they turn it around, facing outside. So people in the community would come from all over and sit on the lawn and watch TV like a theater. Wow. They did that. They did that for people. They were so selfless. They served all the pastors each Sunday. Pastors from all around would come to their house, and they would serve the pastors first. Kids played in the yard. Everybody else waited. They served the pastors first. The pastors ate, they got them left, then the rest of the family and the kids came in and ate. That's the way they lived life. Power of one,
0: power of one,
1: huh? Yep. Yep. They were just amazing, amazing human beings. That lady just truly, and and the reason why I keep referring to that lady rather than that couple, it's obviously the couple, Russell, her husband. Um, but he passed away three months after I moved in with them. He had, was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer, and it just took him real quick. So I stayed with her six years, just me and B. Unbelievable.
0: Well, anyone that's in a relationship, and I can you know speak to my wife and with you with Jackie, we're just doing what we're told from our our better half, anyways, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. I'm
1: learning, Ken. Boy, okay. I tell you what, brother. Listen to this. Being a street kid, it is so hard for me to take orders. You know. You know what I mean? I can't. I don't do well with that. I could I could have never be. I could have never handled being a criminal and being in jail because it's what you're going you're to take orders. Sure. And it's one of the reasons why. I Just you know, I've, I've just been very independent my whole life. Took care of myself. And I'm learning that you have to. Compromise And you have to You know Think about Somebody else's Feeling Used to it Didn't be, It wasn't that way It was like You're on your own man But not now
0: That's the <laughs> That's the second Lesson in life That you're going to be Learning and that's The power of two Buddy <laughs> You said that
1: right word. I love it The power of two I love it Man i went to Write a book Called
0: that Well Jimmy but, Thank
1: now, you man, I'm telling you It's, it's amazing man Well Sorry to interrupt
0: you there, Ken. Oh, no problem. I I just wanted to uh, tell you thank you so very much for your time. Uh, For those folks that are local uh, here in Northern California listening to us, um, Jimmy, again, is going to... uh, uh, grace us with his attendance at Golfing Guitars. This year's event is going to be October nineteenth, which is Tuesday. Uh, we're thrilled that he's going to be coming back out. Uh, I'm sure Jackie will be out with them, and and uh, mm-hmm. you can uh, you can. Um, what's great about this event is that uh, Jimmy is so approachable and can share his story directly with you. I'd, I'd encourage you to go out and, and purchase. Uh, his book and read it prior to his visit. I promise you, it will change your life. So, Jimmy, thank you so much for your time, pal, and um, we will look forward to seeing you in October. Absolutely. Thank you, Ken, so much.